Have you ever asked someone a question over email or text and they respond by saying, sure, or okay, and their response left you wondering what they meant by that, or you have more questions by how they responded? You might have typed out, do you want me to help with a pro- do you want to help me with a project? Sure. <laughs> do they mean that in the, yes, for sure, I would love to help you, or do they mean, sure? which means not really. You can also take that sure to mean sure, but I have some questions about what it all entails. For instance, did you hear what the teacher just assigned us for homework? Sure. Or sure could be read in a begrudging if you need me to manner. Maybe in like this question, are you okay watching the kids while I go out for a few minutes? Sure. The vocal inflections or body language does not come through with your answer in a text message or email. And because of that, we either assume a meaning to the sure, or we will seek greater clarification or hope that they offer it freely. We can make our own meaning clear by giving an expanded answer, emphasizing how much we can't wait to help you. or asking questions like, how long exactly are you going to be gone that I'm watching these children? Sometimes the questions that we ask following up make it clear to the person asking what we mean by sure. Emojis also help. Because we can see excitement, laughter, sadness, or a host of emotions seen in that little emoticon. You may not be able to see their physical face to read their response, but that little emoji is helpful to be able to see what they're trying to say. Unless, of course, the person giving the emoji is a sarcastic user of emojis, and they send random emojis to confuse you, then it's anyone's guess as to what sure was meaning in the first place. Well, here in Psalm 145, you are all wondering how we're transitioning to this. David makes it really clear what he's wanting to communicate in this psalm. He obviously doesn't have emojis at his disposal, but he implements the typical elements of writing that make his point crystal clear. Psalm 145 is a praise psalm of David. It is the last psalm of the collections of David's psalms. It's the last psalm of book five of the psalms. It's not the last psalm in the psalms. We have five more, but those five comprise their own small collection of final praise psalms. If you read them, you'll see they're sort of a closing doxology Remember, at the beginning of this series, we mentioned that each of the five books that the Psalms are collected into end with a doxology, and the Psalm itself, the entire collection, ends with five doxologies, doxology upon doxology of praise to God. Each of those last five Psalms begin and end with the phrase, praise the Lord. But Psalm 145 is attributed to King David. And it uses both structure and repetition to drive home that all creation is to join together in praise of the divine king. Let me read it out loud as you follow along your copy of God's word. There's a Bible provided in the seat, the back of the seat in front of you if you need one. You follow along, Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. 
Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Would you join me as we pray, asking God's uh, blessing on the reading of his word. Faithful God and giver of all things, you have given us your word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As we look into your word together, may we see Jesus, the light of the world and the word made flesh. And in seeing him, may we trust in you with all of our heart, that we would lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you, that you may direct our paths. Amen. First, we want to look at, in this psalm, universal and eternal praise will be given to God our King. Universal and eternal praise will be given to God our King. I mentioned that David, in writing this psalm, gives two things structurally and linguistically to make it crystal clear the point that he is making, that all creation is to join together in praise of the divine king. We see it structurally in how the psalm is written, linguistically in how the words are repeated and used. Structurally, Psalm 145 is one of several acrostic psalms, an acrostic poem in the Psalter. There are others, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, Psalm 37, Psalm 111, Psalm 112, and Psalm 119. In an acrostic structured psalm, each line begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in our alphabet, it would look like line one is, starts with the letter A. So the first word would begin with an A. The second line would begin with a word that begins with B, and so on through 26 lines 
all beginning with a different letter of the alphabet. Sounds pretty cool. But is that all it is? It's cool. Because the poetic form itself is impressive, and thinking of a word that's going to look like this letter, but it doesn't translate over into English for us non-Hebrew speakers. Is it just mere scholarly uh, coolness that those who know Hebrew would know? Or is it intentional by the author to drive home his message? Well, imagine what that would look like in English if we are to say, we're writing this poem out of all of the earth should join in divine praise of, or in praise of the divine king. And we write in such a way that it gives from A to Z, from the beginning to the end, from the alpha to the omega. And we make this claim in the structure that we're using that from A to Z, everything is included. It's sort of a all but the kitchen sink type thing. Everything is in there. Everyone, everything is to declare praise to the Lord. That's not only seen in the words that are used, but in the, actually the structure as well, as it goes from A to Z, or from Aleph to Tal in the Hebrew. So you have it structurally as in it's an acrostic poem, but you also have it linguistically. One author writes, the comprehensive nature of the acrostic psalm is buttressed by the repeated use of the word all throughout the psalm. Did you see how many times the word all repeated itself? You might have picked it up as we were reading, but the word itself appears 17 times in the poem. Over and over again, the psalm celebrates all that God has done and is, is doing for all of his people, all creation. Everyone from A to Z, every person is to join together to celebrate and to praise the divine king for all that he is and for all that he has done. Also, the word praise, uh, words with similar meaning to them are used 18 times in this psalm. Uh, just look at the first two verses alone. You have three different words that are used, extol or exalt you. Bless your name and praise your name. Three different words used with similar meaning to exalt or praise God. It begins with a doxology. Uh, this psalm begins and ends with praise to the Lord with multiple words used in the first few verses and the last verse. Centering on God as our king. Because God is our great king, we praise him with all of our heart and with everything and all of creation. The psalm not only opens and ends with the blessing of the Lord, but it also states that it will be forever and ever. We're going to bless the Lord, but we're going to do so for all of eternity. This is the eternal king that we are praising. What a statement. That we as humans will exalt the God of the universe, the high king of heaven. Don't let that get lost on us. That the eternal God, the king of all creation, allows, wants, desires, calls us to praise him. God is our king. And that necessitates that we are his subjects. And it is our duty to praise him. But as we'll see later in the psalm, because of who he is, 
and what our king has done, it is our delight to praise him. The psalmist here enters into a form of hyperbole, as is often the case in the psalms. And he says things like, forever and ever, and every day I will bless him. The pattern of life is one of praise. The desire of the people of God is to praise God at all times. The psalmist states in each of the first two verses and in the last verse, another thing that he repeats at the beginning and at the end, book ending this psalm, is he's praising the name of the Lord. Why God's name? Why not just saying we're praising God most high? We're, we're going to bless the Lord himself. Because the name of God is closely related to the character of God. Just as when you think of a person, you don't stop usually at just thinking about their name, but you instinctively think about their character or the experiences that you have had with them. Those things come to mind as well. So his name is related to his character, and also the Lord himself does this for his people. Often as he relates to them his name, he then begins to share or show his character to them. One instance is in Exodus chapter 34. It says there, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. There his name is proclaimed. In verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God passes by Moses and declares his name and then immediately begins to declare his character. Here, all of creation in Psalm 145, as it begins, is called to praise the Lord together forever and ever to bless his name. But central to the praise of God and his name is our capacity to bear witness to who God is. We immediately move from praising God's name to praising who he is and also what he has done. Because central to bearing witness to who he is is understanding the identity of God and remembering his activity that he has done. Number one, God is going to be praised as a divine king for all of eternity. And number two, and I didn't quote that number one exactly universally. It's up there on the screen for you. Number two, God is to be praised for who he is. So in the beginning, the first part of it is the psalmist is saying, this is what I'm going to do. I forever and ever will bless the Lord. And second, as the psalmist begins to move on, we begin to see why, who it is that God is and what he has done. God is to be praised for who he is. He is to be praised by his people, but Praise does not always look like just singing in church or with a song at home or in your car. Praising God is not equal to listening to Christian music. Now, I know this is a psalm, and I know that the psalms are the songs of the people of Israel. 
However, there are two things that the psalmist mentions in verses 4 and 5 that show us that praise is more than just praise and worship, which is, i.e., Christian music in a worship service. Number one, in verse 4, he states that one generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. In our blessing and extolling the Lord, we will share with others who God is and what he has done. One generation will pass it down to the next. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Parents are going to share with their children, grandparents with their grandchildren. You will share with your neighbor or your friends the praise of the Lord, who he is and what he has done. This is more public than the point above this, and that we're going to personally worship and extol the Lord forever and ever. You are taking what has bowed your heart in reverence towards God and passing that on to your children or to others. It's an inward flowing out from your heart that says, I'm worshiping the Lord, and that naturally is flowing downward to another generation or outward to someone else. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7 gives the command to Israel and to them to pass on to the next generation what it is that God has done. Notice the language that is used in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You see, when someone loves the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might, which, humanly speaking, is absolutely impossible. And yet, when our desire is to strive towards this great commandment that God has given to his people, these things will flow towards our children To others, we will speak of them in our house. And yet he also mentions there in Deuteronomy 6-7, the need for us to do so diligently. It doesn't say it's just going to accidentally happen, but there's an intentionality. Parents, grandparents, read stories to your children about what God has done in eternity past for his people. Read stories to your children about what God has done for his people in the scriptures. Read stories to your children about what God has done for his people in church history. Share stories with your children and your grandchildren about what God has done for you. Tell them. Tell them why it is that you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This verse is not a proof text for children's church or Sunday school programs. It is not a command for parents or church leaders to make sure they have age-appropriate classes for children so that kids can be told Bible stories. Rather, it seems like the response, the natural response of the heart who is postured towards God and will flow over to their children. If I genuinely believe that God is great, worthy of my praise and submission. If God really is my eternal king, then my children will know it. If every day I am blessing the Lord, then my children will pick up on that. 
And what did Israel have when they were commanded to do this? But the oral tradition to pass on to their children. And what did the oral tradition contain but the stories, the stories of creation, of sin and the fall in the garden, and redemption that God promises to Abraham and the people of Israel, of redemption that they heard of and saw God delivering his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. This shapes how we view praising God, doesn't it? Too often, as I mentioned, we think of it as only a word that affects our singing, our praise and worship time, as some speak of it. But the psalmist is blessing and praising the Lord as he passes down to another generation and to others what God has done. Another word that the psalmist uses here in verse 5 is meditate. Not often a word that we combine with this idea of praise or praise and worship or blessing the Lord. But a word that the psalmist brings up, not only when we praise the Lord will we pass it on, but it will cause us to meditate. Meditate on who God is and what he has done. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, he says, I will meditate. Meditation has, meditate has a connotation that you are lingering long over God's word. You are thinking on the stories of God's deliverance again and again. You are mulling over. You are feeding slowly. While blessing the Lord may last a few minutes, meditating has a dwelling upon idea. Meditation is not for the spiritual elite, the intellectual Christian, or the overachiever believer. To meditate on God's word is for the person who knows who they are apart from Jesus and stands in awe of God who is their king, their father, and their savior. Come back to the goodness of God over and over again. Don't forget all that he has done for you in eternity, up to today and forever. Don't allow yourselves to only focus on what you think has been taken from you or circumstances that are difficult, but let your heart of praise move you into meditating on the majesty of God and the wondrous works that he has done. What is it that God has done? The second point was to look at, excuse me, who God is. So who is he? Notice as the psalmist continues, beginning in verse 6. We'll speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Declare your greatness. Our God is great. He is to be praised because he is righteous. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, good. He's a king. He's faithful. And he's kind. There's one Christian song that I can't remember the title of right now. Actually, I can, and I won't mention it. But it speaks about thousands and thousands and thousands of reasons to bless the Lord. And I think in the song it mentions three. I could be wrong. You're Googling it right now, maybe. It only mentions a few. Here in this psalm, which is probably shorter lyrics than that song is, look at how many he's already listed off of the character of our God. Don't be satisfied with a song, but let the songs move you to the scriptures so that the songs will feed you and give you a taste of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, and continue to remind you you need to meditate Marinate in 
God's word. Reminding yourselves of the great stories of who God is from his word. Bringing yourself back to the Psalms again and again that remind us of who we are apart from Christ. And it is none of these things. On our own, we are not great. We are not righteous. We can put a knot in front of each one of these attributes of who God is. I am not merciful. I am not slow to anger. I am not good. I am not faithful. I am not kind. Yet it's only in the gospel because the God who is these things came and poured out his love on us that we can even begin to be these things by God's power and for his glory. But have you seen God in these ways? Have you taken time to praise God for who he is? Have you written down things that speak to God about, uh, to speak that God is good, faithful, and great? Have you seen it? Do you meditate? On these things or share them with others? Do you pass down to others how you have seen God to be merciful? How you understand your relationship to God as your king? It is easy and so natural for us to run from God, from who he is, to what he has done because his works flow from his character. And so when we think of who God is, we naturally want to run to, this is how I've seen it. God is slow to anger. Here's how I've experienced this attribute of his works or this work that he has done on my behalf. We see his character displayed to us in his works. However, God is these things. God is great and righteous in all the lists that we mentioned whether there was any benefit at all to us ever or not. God is still good and gracious and righteous and great and kind. He's still the king of all the earth, whether it ever came down to benefit me at all or not. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world, whether I've ever seen it or not, whether I believe it is or not. It is. Mount Everest is great and terrifying and mind-blowing, but I've never seen it. And its existence really has no effect on my life. But it doesn't make it any less true. However, God is not like Mount Everest. Because not only does God exist, and God is these things, whether we believe it or not, God has shown us his character again and again over the centuries and millennia. And he has had an eternal impact on our entire lives. Thirdly, God is to be praised for what he has done. God will be praised. The divine king will be praised. He's to be praised for who he is. And he is to be praised for what he has done. So what is it that he has done? What is it that he has done for you? What comes to mind when we think of that? He's opened our eyes to our sin and our need for a savior. What glorious grace. He has provided us 
with eternal redemption through his son, Jesus. He's given you common grace that you are experiencing and enjoying right now that we might be completely oblivious to. You're here. You're healthy enough to walk in or come in these doors and be here. You probably had food this morning. If you're not, you're really wanting food this afternoon. You have clothes on. You have a house or somewhere to go to dwell. And and if not, you had a place to sleep, indoors, outdoors, somewhere. We have so much in which to be thankful for that he has done on our behalf. And the ones that the psalmist brings up, look as we continue on reading in the psalm. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Those two alls in there are incredibly comforting. Raises all who are bowed down, upholds all who are falling. He feeds you with food in due season, verse 15. The eyes of all are looking to him and he gives them food. You open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is near to those who call on him in prayer. He is near to us. What else is it that God has done for us? He preserves those who love him, verse 20. What kind comfort that God gives to us, not only in redeeming us, but the mercy and grace he gives in preserving us. I think of this often with the scriptures. We love that God has inspired his word and given it to us, but what a miracle that he has preserved it until until today and in our own language with such accuracy that we can look at it and read it and declare this is the word of the Lord. Yet God has done the same for us. Not only has he saved and redeemed us, but he has kept us and he has preserved us. And by his grace, he will not let us go. He preserves those who love him. Brothers and sisters, what reasons we have to praise the Lord. God has ultimately, has redeemed his people ultimately through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross for sinners. All of these things find their true fulfillment in the person of Christ who has come and who has given us, satisfied us with every spiritual food, everything that we will ever need for all of eternity. The divine king ought to be praised for all of eternity by every person in every way simply because of who he is and what he has done. And it is not so that I can do something else. I don't come and praise God. Notice that the psalmist ends by saying exactly how he started. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And he doesn't say, so that you can now be an amazing evangelist to those around you. So that your church can grow and leap and bounce. So that all these other things. I want to become like this. How do I do it? I think I begin by praising the Lord. No, we praise the Lord because he is intrinsically worthy. And that alone draws me to praise him. What he has done for us and who he is That alone draws my heart to praise who he is, praise who he 
is. I think I just said that twice. If you would take your Bible to Revelation 5. Because when I think of doxologies, and I think of all people praising the Lord and bursting forth with praise, the divine king who sits on the throne, you can't help but want to go to Revelation chapter 5. As you're turning there, I'll, I'll, be, I'll begin reading. It begins this way, as John says, this I saw, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Imagine the silence. Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. You see this collection of people is getting bigger and bigger as elders and are holding bowls of prayers of the saints and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Here you have this beautiful scene of every living creature, of all singing praise and blessing the divine King for all of eternity, from every nation, from every tribe, people, tongue, and language because he had conquered, because he was seated on the throne, because he was worthy, the one who was slain, who ransomed people for God, making them, us, a kingdom and priests to God. I want to close with a song. We've been doing this. Some of you may wonder why we're doing this. I'm closing with a hymn each time. These were the songs of the people of Israel that they would sing. We have our own songs that we sing, some psalms that we sing, and more we want to sing, and yet there are incredible songs that we sing, some written years ago and some written more than years ago, hundreds of years ago. 
the songs that we sing, and as we sing them, imagine the, the myriads of myriads of people, Christians who have gone before us, who have joined in singing these songs in their own congregations and homes. This morning, I want to read the lyrics, and the reason that I'm doing this also is so that you get in the habit of reading lyrics, so that when we're singing, you're not just caught up in singing. This is great. What a great song. I love the tune. Bouncy. But I love the lyrics. And they're drawing me to meditate on who God is and what he has done. Oh, four thousand tongues to sing was written by Charles Wesley in 1740 or thereabouts. It originally had 18 stanzas. I'm only going to read six. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, four thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. This morning, I was given incredible news Yesterday in a Bible study, a, a man came to that Bible study and received Jesus for the very first time as his Lord and Savior. He prayed to receive Christ, having confessed his sins and desiring to follow after Jesus. What incredible news of a heart who has been redeemed, who now says, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. Would you join me as we pray, and then we'll stand to sing. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have redeemed us from our sins, that you by your own blood that was shed uh, on the cross, you have taken our sins on yourself and redeemed us. That you are God alone, you are worthy of our praise because of who you are and we delight in what you have done. Father, would you take these songs, these scriptures, this message, these prayers that we have heard this morning and would you continue to draw us to meditate on who you are and to praise you forever and ever. For you are good. You are merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we long to sing of the praise of the redeemed for all of eternity to the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.